Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. The January 6th committee recently held its third public hearing. This hearing focused on the pressure that former President Donald Trump, Attorney John Eastman, and others put on former Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the 2020 election results. Meanwhile, the Department of Justice wants to review the transcripts from key committee interviews. And the committee seems to be taking a closer look at the involvement of Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, in the effort to overturn the election results. Preet Bharara and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as part of the Insider community. The other person who I feel like was a main character at this event, the last hearing, was the lawyer academic that we've spoken about a number of times, John Eastman. John Eastman, who served as President Trump's campaign lawyer, wrote that memo about the steps by which the election could be overturned, had heated, angry exchanges with members of Penn staff and with other people. John Eastman's not a dumb guy. He was a good law student, an academic, clerked for Judge Michael Ludig, who we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes. John Eastman also, interestingly, given the nature of the hearing, was a former law clerk to Judge Michael Ludig, who testified at the hearing. And that's not it, right? Right. Clerked also with Ted Cruz for Justice Thomas. Yeah, so John Eastman's not a dummy, although he played the part here. And among other things, he seems to have admitted that the actions he was suggesting would violate the Electoral Count Act. And then to me, the, the greatest evidence that he knew what he was doing was wrong was he put in writing to, of all people, Rudy Giuliani, a request for a pardon preemptively as the administration came to an end. What was the phrase he used? People have been mocking it on Twitter. I would like to be on the pardon list if that is still in the works. Spawning the best memes of all time, <laughs> right? People have been um, posting pictures of like their messy room and you know other things that they've done. <laughs> so I'd like to be on the list of pardons if that's still in the works. So you have a guy who makes these admissions, who's a smart guy, who knows better, who puts in for a pardon preemptively. What's going on with this guy? This guy just wanted to win no matter what. And, you know, something that's that's really chilling in all of this is there's this notion buried into his memo and his exchanges with Pence's counsel that even though he knows that this scheme is illegal, it's going to be okay because they don't think that the courts will consider it. That's what he tells Greg Jacob, who is Pence's chief counsel. He he acknowledges as they're having a talk about it that, yeah, maybe this isn't completely kosher, but he says, I don't think the courts would consider this issue. It's a political question. And so it's this notion that they are willing to do something that violates the law because they can get away with it, that epitomizes so much of the Trump administration for me, and that's troubling. But that's not really the thread that gets pulled here. The thread that gets pulled here is Eastman's acknowledgement that this scheme wasn't legal and that he apparently concedes that in a conversation with Donald Trump in the room on January 4th. 
And there's another concession. This is one of the most astounding things to me that shows it's not about principle, it's not about law, it's not about the rule of law. It's about power and obfuscation. There's this conversation that Jacob, Pence's chief counsel, describes that he had with Eastman. And he makes a very logical argument, right? Jacob says, John, back in 2000, you weren't jumping up and saying Al Gore had this authority to do that. You would not want Kamala Harris to be able to exercise that kind of authority in 2024 when I hope Republicans will win the election. And I know you hope that too, John. Pretty good argument. What's the response to that? And he says, according to him, Eastman says, Absolutely. Al Gore did not have a basis to do it in 2000. Kamala Harris shouldn't be able to do it in 2024. But I think you should do it today. Mm -mm -mm. I think you should do it today. That tells you everything that you need to know. As you say, there's no principle here. Yeah, if there were going to be a trial of John Eastman or, or anyone else, that would be front and center. Eastman, when he testified, took the fifth reportedly 100 times. I would like to hear what Eastman's response to that is. Is he going to call Jacob a liar? Is he going to say his words were misconstrued? Is he going to say he meant something different from what is being quoted? We don't know. But you can draw an adverse inference, can you not? I think you can. They they don't show up. I'm told that Eastman on his blog or his substack or something that I haven't read sort of says it's not true. But there's a big difference between saying that and testifying to it when you're under oath. And these witnesses on the vice president's staff, you know, whether you like their policies or not, took an oath to tell the truth. And then this is what they said. And they could just as easily have told more watered down versions that, you know, painted Eastman in a more benign light, but they didn't. When they were under oath, this is what they said. Eastman and others haven't been willing to match that with their own testimony. You know, that's not all that Jacob testified to. He also said when he pressed Eastman on his plan, his illegal plan, he claims he said to Eastman, John, if the vice president did what you were asking him to do, we would lose 9 nothing at the Supreme Court. And then Jacob said, well, Eastman first tried to say, actually, it would be like 7-2 in the vote if it came to it, and then admitted his legal theory would lose 9-0. to zero. So there's a guy, violates the ECA, asks for a pardon, no principle with respect to the Kamala Harris and Al Gore examples, and according to Jacob, admitted that the legal theory would lose 9-0. to zero. No wonder he took the fifth. He sounds to me like someone who has so much to gain by cooperating with the government and telling the truth. It's a little bit surprising to me that he hasn't decided to play the John Dean role here. Can I ask a sort of a question that maybe people are wondering? Sure. Because it occurred to me, right? And I think we should draw a distinction. In the United States of America, every day in state and federal court, there are people who are lawyers, who are representing clients, and they're required to represent them zealously within the bounds of the law. And they make aggressive arguments all the time, right? The client, whether it's a general counsel of a company or an individual, whether it's a criminal case or a civil case, and particularly in civil cases, by the way, you know, demand their lawyers to make any argument that they could possibly make in favor of the client's position. And I'm sure you and I, I mean, I, I'm speaking for myself, I've seen crazy arguments made. Because every once in a while, I learned this as a young associate, every once in a while, a crazy argument on behalf of a client zealously made prevails. Because sometimes a judge gets it wrong. This is a dirty little secret in the practice of law. I, I didn't get that at first. You know, when people were talking about making super aggressive arguments, either on the side that I was on when I was a young associate, 
Or on the other side, I thought it was just ludicrousness. And then every once in a while, you see an outlandish argument succeed. Sometimes it gets reversed on appeal or you know, other jurisdictions weigh in and then the circuit split gets resolved in favor of the right thing. But the outlandish argument is made and you know, sometimes there are sanctions motions brought, like you saw in 60 to 61 cases relating to the Kraken lawyers, but nobody goes crazy and bananas. Is that because those cases are just mundane, everyday legal matters? And here where we're talking about the election, the national election, we're supposed to hold John Eastman to a higher standard? What? How do you d- describe that? No, no, it's absolutely not a higher standard. You know, in, in the day-to-day cases where lawyers vigorously and zealously represent their clients, which is their duty as members of the bar, there is a line where they stop. And that's, that's I think, the line that you reference, this line of frivolity. You can't make specious, frivolous arguments. And that's what John Eastman did, and, and something a little bit worse than frivolous. He advocated a position that outright violated the law, that he conceded the law. So, you know, if this was litigation and somebody filed a Rule 11 motions for sanctions, he would certainly be the rare case where a court would entertain that. But this is far worse for a lawyer to do this because something that you're not allowed to do is to advocate that your client violate the law. And certainly not when that violation is, hey, let's uh, steal this presidential election from the guy who won it by, what did Biden win by? Five million, seven million votes? Something like that. No, I think that's very well put. You know, every once in a while you hear that people don't hold lawyers in high regard. And there are lawyers on the spectrum here, you know, that you don't hold in high regard at all. A couple that you hold in high regard and some and we'll talk about this, that you can be mixed on, where they didn't do some things, but they did other things. Yeah. Eastman did none of those things, right? I find it really frightening that he was an academic. I feel like every young lawyer who studied under him might want to question what they were taught. Or a rebate. So let's talk about the the other gentleman that Eastman clerked for, J. Michael Ludig. He testified, and the reason it's significant, and maybe lay folks don't appreciate it as much, He's a towering figure in conservative jurisprudence. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who've chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.